Good morning, Sarah Hepla. Good morning, Nancy Rommelman. How's your world over there? Well, it's hot, and I'm glad we could make this happen. So, um, my wow, it has been a week at the uh, Nancy Rommelman Paloma Media Central apartment in Chinatown, including it's been so hot that I thought my modem melted. Um, Plus, Someone said to me, modems last like a couple of years. And we, uh, as a workout, right? Because we have a recording studio here. Fifth Column guys are doing it. We're doing it. Ask a Jew is doing it here. I'm like, all right, man, we, we burnt out the modem. Well, I got a new modem and then I'm still having the issues. So my very nice neighbor upstairs is letting me tie into her Wi-Fi so we can record. So here we are. So we're doing this on stolen Wi-Fi. We are. This is stolen. I'm also doing We want to make a land acknowledgement that uh, this Wi-Fi originally belongs to Nancy's neighbor. Kona Mori. Thank you, Kona. Um, uh, And we are also not able to do it in the studio, which is like the other part of my apartment. So I live right next door to a fire station uh, here on Canal Street in New York City. So if you hear some clanging, that's because they're going off and, and saving people. So... Yay! One of the things I noticed when I when I came to visit you was the um, like coming in and out of your apartment. It was like these really hot firemen that are hanging out down there. Like I'm I'm sure I'm not the only person that's noticed this. Wait a second, firemen are hot. What do you I mean? Know. So when I was, I think, I don't know if we, I told this story at some point, I was about 15 and there was a fire across the street in the apartment building. It wasn't actually a fire, it turned out not to be a big deal, but I was watching the firemen. I was like, oh my God, especially one of them. I was like, holy mackerel. So I made some cookies as one does and uh, brought it down to the fire station, which is about like seven or eight blocks and gave it to them. And um, when I got back, my mom, my mom's like, Nancy, it's the uniform. But I think it's not only the uniform. No, I don't think it's the uniform. In <laughs> fact, you know, I, I I can't remember if I've said this before, but when I dated a, I know that I've mentioned I dated a cop, but he hated firemen. Bingo. He just oh, hated them. Competition. There's, there's a lot of resentment. And I think one of the reasons is that there's a de facto sense that firemen are super hot. And he's like, they don't do anything. They just sit around all day. And eat. They make stew, right? Well, the thing is that I I um I had a friend whose brother was a firefighter, and he said that uh he's a New York City firefighter, and he said that the cop the firemen used to get away kind of with murder, like if they were drinking and driving or some of yes. that. Like the, the cops would actually let them go. There's like a certain brotherhood There's there. A, yeah. But I think there was, um, yeah, certain like, why do the firemen get all the ladies? Even if they don't actually get the ladies, why are the ladies like, why are their like panties flying off when they, when they see them? Well, it, there's a certain, like, I don't know if it's just uh, imagined or implied courage. I mean, you know, this is kind of a courageous job, right? I mean, I know you, but I, don't know, I think there maybe is more moral clarity going on with like saving people from a burning building yes, as opposed yes. to the gray areas that cops have to inhabit where they're patrolling the street. And there's yes. a lot of pushback around how they use their authority. I don't think that that firemen have that kind of uh, moral gray zone that they're working in. No, no, because when you see them, it's an emergency. It's sort of a, we talked about um, when the... Um, um, the terrible uh, shootings in Uvalde, Uvalde, right, in Texas. Um, and uh, someone I know who had been um, in the federal building during the occupation of the federal building and the, and the uh, big protest in Portland in 2020, and I was communicating with him, and he, he said, if we meet, you're having a bad day. 
because yeah. he is a person who is um, often like saving migrants from drowning as they are trying to cross the border or he and his crew um, are sent into like hurricane zones. Uh, it's just like they're doing when you meet a firefighter. It's an emergency, whether you've just like passed out or there's a fire or some other kind of physical emergency. And I don't think there's a lot of time to uh, hash out ideology. You're just, you know. By the way, my grandfather was a firefighter. There you go. Probably like in a volunteer fire department. No, he was a he was a he was an actual firefighter. No idea if he was hot or not. Hard drinking, (laughs) hot tempered Irish guy. So there you go. There you go. Um. Well, I'm glad to be with you this morning. It feels like we've had a little bit of a lag just traveling and and uh, internet connectivity problems, but um, I think we have a lot to talk about this morning, Sarah Hepfla. We sure do. Where do you want to begin, Nancy Rommelman? I, I think I want to start with Rumble. Okay, um, let's do it. Okay, so uh, a couple, I guess our last episode or the one before that, um, we put a link in the show notes, which by the way, you guys should like check out if you're not. They're... Pr- I, we have a good time writing them. So uh, maybe you'd have a good time reading them and they certainly can take you down some interesting paths and maybe rabbit holes. But um, my brother just told me that he reads the episode notes instead of listening to the podcast, which is not the applied use. It's not it's not the intended use, but I will excuse this. But why not? I mean, you know, people like to get their their uh, entertainment matter in different forms. I get that. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, um uh, Rumble, the Indians who rocked the world. I think that's the the subtitle. Mm-hmm. Is a documentary about uh, Native Americans in rock music, um, starting with basically Link Ray. Link Ray, I think, was born in 1929, and by the I guess it was like the mid 50s or early 50s even, he started to play this music that was not being played at the time, and it's that song, dong dong dong. <laughs> So it's this guitar. It's 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 an instrumental, and one of the things they tell you in the documentary is that it is the only song that has no lyrics that has been banned because they were afraid it got teenagers so crazy. In any case, they have all kinds of people, um, Stevie Ray Vaughan and, and Robbie Robertson of the band and, and others, uh, coming in and saying, okay. Oh, oh, uh, also, um, oh, who else did they have? Anyway, they're saying this song, this was the song that made me realize I had to play music. I had to play rock and roll. And can I say a few things yeah. about this song? First yeah. of all, I've been hearing about Link Ray for years because I, I hang around, you know, in, in music circles and I never knew who this person was. Me neither. It's Link W-R-A-Y. Right. Um, the song Rumble, uh, which is entirely an instrumental, if you're familiar with Pulp Fiction, as I am, I've watched it many times, it plays in the scene where John Travolta and Uma Thurman are sitting in the diner and she's kind of like moving a cherry in and out of her mouth. And I remember hearing it and it's a very cool song. It's like just these series of power chords. And yep. you're like, I was like, what is this song? It sounds familiar, but like, where, like, that's the song. It's not like that's the prelude to the song. That's the song. Yep. And people talk about how it was, you know, the riffs are sort of so lascivious that it was uh, this instrumental song that was still a theme song of juvenile delinquency at the time. And I'm not in the in the documentary. They actually have Link Ray. Obviously, he's passed on at this point, but talking about the song. And I think that I think. 
if I recall this correctly, um, he's saying he was like playing some kind of dance and they, they wanted him to play something else for the kids. And he's like, well, I don't know how to play that, but why don't we try this? And he just broke into it. And the people were like, what is this? Yeah, um, the you, little teeny bobber kids were like, play the stroll. We want to yeah. do the stroll. Right, right. And he's, he's like, like, okay, stroll to this. Dun, 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 dun. So he's, he's a native guy. Um, I mean, I can remember Iggy Pop literally saying, this was the song that gave me permission. I was like, fuck it. I'm going to go do music. I mean, it's really cool to see this. So he was a Native guy. And one thing they're saying is, or that a lot of people are saying, is like, you know, being a Native was not cool back then, okay? No. You had like terrible, terrible prejudice against Blacks, against Natives. I mean, they show this one picture. It's so disgusting. It's like restroom doors. This is back in like the 30s or whatever. There's like you know, Negro, Indians, whites. It's like, it was so, so for people who say things are not getting better in the culture, go read your history books, kids. Anyway, this is not, this, this, this documentary is not about this at all. This documentary is so freaking joyous. And it is talking about people, native peoples uh, in rock and roll who did like miraculous things in ways that are just kind of different. Well, why are they different? Well, because they're informed by the music that they grew up listening to, which despite the U.S. government trying to outlaw, you know, people from speaking their language and playing their music, which they most definitely did, including, including going like during a ghost dance, which was this ceremony that was created in order to like protect themselves from the slaughter they kept having from white uh, troops um, going in and like just literally slaughtering 300 people during the ghost dance and 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 music. I am very familiar um, having, as I'm sure almost everybody at this point knows, I have a daughter who's half Native American. Her dad is Muscogee Creek or was today. My love, Tim Sampson, three years ago today, he died um, with me in the room with him while we were watching, um, watching John McEnroe <laughs> during mm. talk during Wimbledon. In any Three case, years ago today, I know we, we love him. I just put a, a picture of us over on Twitter. So if you want to go see that, I'm at Nancy Rom and Nancy Y R O M M. Um, in any case, uh, there is obviously a beat to to native music, starting whether which which is the drum, which is dun 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 dun. You know, you hear in like the bad movies, you'll hear like yeah 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 yeah. That's not how the drum goes. The drum is the heartbeat, right? It's boom boom. Boom, 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 boom. So this informs a lot of the way these Native guys and gals are are making music. And, and some of them include Jesse Ed Davis. I did not know Jesse Ed Davis, but I do know John Trudell, or I met John Trudell a number of years ago, who wound up making music with Jesse Ed. Jesse Ed played with Taj Mahal, who was all over the documentary. Uh, he also they, was tapped by the Rolling Stones. They flew them over first class on BOAC to uh, to appear on a, a show. Jesse Ed is amazing. He's so unbelievably adorable and cute and talented. And he died in 86, I believe, unfortunately. He overdosed. It's not a good story. Um, who else do you have? You have Robbie Robertson of the band. Who yeah, is, I had no idea he was from the Mohawk tribe. Yeah, I always actually did know he was part Native, um, but here he kind of like talks about it. And I think he's one of the people, if I recall, that talks about it. It's like, you know, it hadn't been cool to be Native. Also, he just wanted to play music. And I think he dropped out of high school and just, you know, started playing music. Um, there's a guy who I didn't, I didn't know. I knew his name, but I didn't know why I knew his name. Randy Castillo, who played drums with Ozzy Osbourne and other people. You got to see this guy play drums. It is 
it's mind blowing. And I, I am not like a big person, like understands my rock history and who did what, like if you sit around here with Michael Moynihan and Matt Welch, which I do after they do a taping of the fifth column, the music bibliography and iconography that they can talk about for hours. It's like mind blowing. I just sit there with my, 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 thumb in my mouth, not understanding anything, but you really get a beautiful sense here of, um, of, of natives contributions to music. And even if it, if it it's just a beautiful experience, it's fun. It's, it's, it's moving. And, and one thing I really wanted to say about this, I noticed this morning when I was looking up this, this was released in, um, in 2017, or that's the date I believe that it was finished. I don't know exactly when it was released. You know, sometimes releases take a long time. But I did notice that in 2020, they were um, talking a lot. It was getting a lot of accolades and it was in, in, well, why, why is it now more, why is it getting more eyeballs now? Well, I think I know. And I think that show is Reservation Dogs, right? Reservation Dogs is the show. My daughter, um, has been uh, set to on, decorate on. Uh, the second season is premiering next month. We'll put links to it. It is created by uh, Sterling Harjo, who is part Muskogee Creek, like my daughter, uh, who they film it in the town of Mogi, Oklahoma, where my daughter's family was raised, where they, her, her daughter's her, her family still is. Um, and uh, Taika Watiti. Taika Watiti, some of you will know, he uh, you'll know him from uh, Thor Ragnarok, one of my favorite movies. If you are in a bad mood, you go watch Thor Ragnarok and it is insane. And what Sarah Heppola, what, uh, oh no, that's not it. Anyway, I'm going to go back to that. Well, can he I also, say that Taika Waititi also did, um, directed one of my favorite movies of the last few years, which is Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit in which he plays Hitler. Yeah. Okay. It's an amazing okay. movie. Amazing movie. He also did the new, uh, the new Thor movie, Love and Love and Thunder. Uh, and he was also, I think, uh, there was a big article about him in the um, uh, last Sunday's uh, New York Times, uh, uh, I guess the arts section. I didn't read it, but I saw it. Um, he and um, Sterling Harjo created this show, Reservation Dogs. Um, I can tell you for sure, because I've met the crew and I've been out there, they did not expect this show to hit the way it did. It has won. I cannot tell you how many awards. I am going to give people, uh, obviously nothing's 100%. I will please listeners go watch Reservation Dogs. Season one's already out. Um, I, I I really defy you not to love this show. It's not like anything you've seen, and it is the way natives are and live. Now, of course, am I a native expert? Of course I'm not, but I've been around native peoples for 35 years, and I can tell you I've been around native peoples in the arts who have been trying, and we've talked about this before, to push that rock up the hill that can we not just play a noble savage? Can we play a dentist? Can we play a a mechanic, a cop? And that took a long, long time. Finally got there. There are natives like throughout, not as much as maybe there should be, just, you know, playing people because they exist but there has not been a show as far as i know like a reservation dogs where you're just like native peoples being peoples the funny stuff but also you know some of the 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 sacred stuff that's 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 animating it from within and also a little bit of the hardship i mean for sure um it's a beautiful beautiful show but the way i'm i'm tying that in is you know we we've had something uh happening uh in the past couple of years for good and probably occasionally for ill, but you know, more, we want more representation, right? We don't want just the same old people making the same old shows. We want to get, you know, different cultures and 
different races and give them opportunities that may have been denied. I think that in the case of reservation dogs, maybe it was useful. Maybe it was useful to getting res dogs the green light. I don't know. I don't know how long res dogs has been trying to get the green light. I can tell you Sterling Harjo has been making incredible art for quite a while now. Um, and when his turn came around, baby, he was ready. I'm going to give you a couple of examples, two that are so diametrically opposed. One is Mekko, a movie, M-E-K-K-O, which is I, I'm going to try not to cry here. Sarah says I only cry about uh, journalism, but this is this movie is about um, kind of homeless people living on the streets. It's a, it's a film uh, in uh, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It is so it is so brutally soul scraping, but also so beautiful and so and so familiar to me. When I watched it a couple of years ago, there was a character in there, a young guy. Well, all of a sudden he's like young. He kind of looks like he just could have got out of like college or high school, but he's on the streets and you could tell like he's a little bit on the skids and, you know, and uh, he's taken in like these other guys, bros, you know, dude, native bros are on the streets. Like, dude, no, we'll help you. We'll help you. And God, it reminded me of this guy, Josh Drum, who um, when I lived in Hollywood with Tim, my ex and Tava was a baby. And um, there were lots and lots of native actors that or native people that had just arrived in Hollywood. They wanted to, you know, get into the film business. This was the days of uh, Dances with Wolves, right? So it, there was more opportunity. And these guys would come like, you know, off the res or from Arizona or from someplace. And they were kind of like, you know, they needed community. So commun one of the community places was my house. And there was this one guy, Josh Drum, beautiful, beautiful artist, beautiful man. I just remember like standing, talking to him on the curb. And anyway, when I was um, in uh, Oklahoma last year, visiting the set of um, Reservation Dogs, um, um, Zan McClanahan, who's one of the stars of it, we wound up talking, wound up, he'd lived with Tim years ago. I remember him. We remembered each other. And I was like, God, you know, that movie, that that movie Mecco, that one character really reminded me of Josh Drum. What happened to Josh? I know he died. And he's like, Nancy, he did. And he just, he like, he deliberately and, and terribly as a young man just drank himself to death. You know, mm. it was just too much like pain. And anyway, this movie Mecco is just, I, 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 it's just, it's so real to me. So if you don't know this world, and most people hearing are not going to know this world, but you know, hard worlds of your own, check out this, this, this movie. And on the other end of the spectrum, which is, is, is Sterling Harjo and a bunch of guys that for years and years, they've had this comedy troupe called the 1491s. You can find their stuff on YouTube and I will link a video, it's short, it's like three minutes long that they did, called I'm an Indian Too. I have watched this video probably 20 times and cried with laughter every time because it's about, you know, like people are like, oh yeah, you know, I, I have some native blood. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, sure. Tell me about it. We think we've talked about this before when uh, there was a little girl at a, at a powwow and she was dancing. She had red hair, red braids flying around, but she was she was in native regalia dancing. I don't know, maybe jingle dress dancing. I don't know what kind, but um, you're gonna hear the fire engines here coming from my 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 sexy neighbors are are going to off to save people. Um, as she was dancing, and my my husband, my ex's cousin, said to her, "Hey, what tribe are you?" And he she goes, "I don't know, but Mama knows." So they called her the Mama knows tribe. So anyway, um, it's an interesting time for for 
native works, um, high tide floats all boats. And I think certainly in the case of native works, they have not been represented the way maybe natives have wanted to or or the way it is. So we're getting opportunity to see that roll around now. And I, for one, am moved and I laugh and I cry. And it's just, it's wonderful. And the one, one last thing I'll add, I've said this 5 million times, is that my late Tim's ex, my his dad was Will Sampson, who starred in Cuckoo's Nest, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, and who was played the chief. And he was very, very, very adamant when I knew him, because I knew him, I was, I was with him when he died too, um, to, to get Natives opportunity in the arts, to not marginalize them as, you know, savages or noble, you know, flutes playing, wind chimes chiming, dream catchers catching, this kind of stuff. Like, we're people, we're here, we live, we have problems that are right. interesting <clears throat> and that are unique and problems that are the same damn problems that everybody else has. So let's have representation. And right now we've got some beautiful examples of that in Reservation Dogs and in this film Rumble. So... There so I have, I have a few thoughts. One of them is I have a friend who uh, likes to listen to podcasts at like one and a half or two times speed because it makes them faster. Yeah. And one of the things he observed is that when he listens to our podcast, my voice is exactly right <laughs> at two times speed because I talk so slowly. And he said, but Nancy turns into this little like squeaky chipmunk, <laughs> like because you talk so fast already. I used to call my dad uh, and I'd call him and I'd, I'd talk for a while. He's like, okay, Nancy, slow down. He's like, when I'm sitting with you, I can see what you're doing, but your body language and talking, but on the phone, it's uh, it's just too fast. So, sorry. Now, you know, when I was younger, I used to always get accused of talking too fast. But as I've gotten older, I think also because I'm like choosing my words carefully, I go really slow on this podcast. So we are a very interesting mix of... 0.75 speed and one and a half speed. Um, I had a few thoughts about why 2020 might be the year that this documentary got resurrected, uh, rediscovered. You know, that was also the year of George Floyd. Right. And I know for myself, I was reading a lot of stories about race relations in America, but they were 90% focused on the um, experience between between Black Americans and white Americans. And it was somewhere along that line that I was like, why do I not hear anything about the Native experience? And I went, I remember I went searching, like I, I, I at one point my family was supposed to go visit a museum in, in Oklahoma, but then COVID hit and we couldn't do it. But I, I found it very difficult to find meaningful art about what it was, like, what is the Native contribution or the Native experience? Now, I'm going to, honestly, one of the things that prompted this was an almost, no, not almost, an embarrassing sense of my own ignorance. You know, one of the things that made me fascinated about reservations and and what that life was like was driving through the Southwest in my 20s. You know, when you drive across Arizona or you drive across Utah, you spend, you know, you, you end up going past a lot of these reservations. And I would be like, what is this experience? Like, what is it like here? It seems like from the highway, it seems very tilted towards tourism. And that always seems like a sort of gross trap. You know, like you have to kind of play the role that that visitors like me are 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 looking for as they as they go through. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I one of the things I really liked about Rumble, this documentary, was that one of the things it showed me was the thread of Native influence that's been moving through the culture all along. I mean, this documentary took me a really long time to watch, in part because I kept stopping to go through, down rabbit holes of mm-hmm. other... Mm-hmm artists that it was bringing up this guy charlie Patton, who has choctaw ancestry who's like one of the you know like very influential blues guitarists um one of the things they they point out is that he played drum on his guitar and Mm -hmm. and one of the reason he did that was because the drum was considered an insurrectionary instrument and they outlawed Uh, them they were not allowed to have drums. I didn't know that. I didn't either. And and who knows how endemic it was. But yeah, this is yeah. just, it's like, you will, how do we make people cease to exist? We take their language, we take their music, we take their children, which of course, you know, the government fam- famously did, even more so in Canada. We will destroy you. We will destroy you. But they couldn't. They can't. Uh, Howlin' Wolf, who is like an incredibly cool singer. He was somebody that came up in a lot of the, a few of the Elvis documentaries that I watched. He has Choctaw blood and he is just an incredibly cool vocalist and performer. Somebody that like a lot of these, you know, these British superstars like the Stones and Led Zeppelin got really obsessed with these performers and brought them to, to more, um, you know, like renowned during their time because they were just such cool figures. There's a jazz singer named Mildred Bailey who had influenced Tony Bennett and Frank Sinatra. She was so cool. Um, and I did not realize Jimi Hendrix was... Had, part, had some native blood. I think he was a quarter. Some, ch- okay. Yeah, Cherokee. Yeah. Yeah. Um, somebody describes him as being, he's like an American superhero. He's part everything. Yeah, yeah. I have uh, my stepson, Tim's son, has a son who is a quarter native, a quarter black, a quarter Asian, and a quarter white. Yeah, anyway. Yeah, I didn't know the story either that that Johnny Cash had done an album that was sort of about... Um, Native songs. It was native it, songs, and there was songs a, about na- about with native themes, like uh, yeah, uh, it's called Ira Bitter Hayes. Tears, and it originally got this cold reception in the marketplace, and and the idea was that the, the album made people feel guilty, which I think is so fascinating and is really central to part of this story that's going on, is that people kind of don't want to think about what came before and so there's both a denial and then an overcorrection um in in a kind of like well we have to be very noble like as opposed to just acknowledging the complications of history that came before but johnny cash ends up taking this like full page ad out and calling yep. the dj's gutless and he yep. he sends a thousand records to stations and i mean he just, he's like really puts it's his amazing. muscle behind this song and it ends up being like number three on the country charts but anyway i i didn't know anything about that story and i found it really fascinating um well this kind of um ties in a little bit when you're talking about acknowledging things like, yeah, they didn't want to acknowledge things. Don't, don't push my guilt in my face. That was not me. I don't want to know anything about that because you're still kind of in the middle of it, right? It's still existing and we're just not going to address it. Well, 
you know, things have changed. And we have started a couple of years ago uh, to really, really want to acknowledge things. And I think this is sort of how this, what, what did you ask me the other day, Sarah? You asked me for, for my opinion on something and I said, yeah. we would talk about it. I wanted to know what your thoughts were on land acknowledgement. Because I really don't like this is something that uh, came up. I was seeing a play about three or four years ago and all of a sudden they started dropping these native tribes that have been and and it was weird because it was like they were like, put away your cell phones. And then we would like to acknowledge. And I was like, what's happening? What happened? Where what, what, what I, was I supposed to buy something? Was what there happened? a bracelet? What's I was going supposed on to be right wearing? now? And yeah. then uh, I, you know, I felt silly afterward because then I went online and I saw that this has long been a tradition in Canada. This had been going on for many years in other places. It just maybe was a little slow to move to Dallas. Um, and I had an immediate negative reaction toward it that I wanted to interrogate. Because I think as a general rule, I think of Dallas as a place denuded of its history. You know, this is a place of strip malls and uh, redevelopment. And people don't even know that, for instance, like Bonnie and Clyde came from Dallas. Or, you know, it took us many decades to even get a museum about the president's, the, the JFK's assassination. Because there's a kind of turning away from difficult history. And I don't like that impulse. But there was also something about this that felt perfunctory and performative. Um, but I, But I just, I'd never heard... I'd never really thought too much about it. So as we were going to be talking about this subject, yeah, I wanted to hear your thoughts on this. So I've actually, so just if, if, if it isn't clear, land acknowledgement is like before some kind of meeting, a play, a, a meeting of the water, water board or the, the school board, you, you stop and you say, we'd like to acknowledge, you know, that this land used to belong to the Shoshone or the Cherokee or, or whatever. So I've actually never um, experienced it. I know uh, Katie Herzog of Blocked and Reported was talking about how like, you know, <laughs> everything in the Seattle area now. Like, you can't do anything. Like, I'd like to buy these seven oranges. Oh, okay, but first let's acknowledge, you know, where this <laughs> land came from. Um, but I, I asked my daughter, you know, first of all, number one, she's half native. Uh, second of all, she's just spent time in Oklahoma, which is, you know, Oklahoma, I believe is a Cherokee word for home of the red man. Could be wrong. That's what I was told by her father. Don't blame me if it's wrong. Um, um, and she said, oh, yeah, I, I've heard of it. I was like, have you ever seen it? She said, no. And I oh, said, well, interesting. I said, well, what do you, what do you think of that? And she's like, oh. she didn't like have any big feeling about it one way or the other. And, um, uh, I was like, wow, I just totally lost my train of thought. Oh, I said, oh, I said, well, you know, when, when Sarah Heppler asked me this, I thought I would channel your dad to see what he, what he would say about this. Cause this was not happening when he was alive. That's far as we know, at least not where we were in Portland at the time where I'm sure it's happening now everywhere in Portland. But, um, he would say to me, well, nanny, that's what he called me, nanny. I, you know, that's good. It's, it's good that, you know, they're acknowledging this should happen, but it's more white people shit. That's what he'd right. say. He'd say, he'd be like, okay, so what is this doing? Who is this helping? What is this for? Okay, so you've now had two minutes or a minute or 35 seconds or whatever before your performance of uh, Shakespeare or whatever you're, you're getting, and we've acknowledged the land. Okay. And? And who's doing it? Now, I'm, I'm sure there are some 
Native activists that are super into this. Um, I'll tell you the people that I know, maybe they're a little older, maybe they're not as political. I think they'd be like kind of amused and also like, well, what's it for? Like, who have you, you, I think it's again, it, it's it, to me, it's a little bit, it's a bit superficial. Uh, you are then like, are you trying to like, are you trying to assuage some kind of guilt you may or may not feel? Are you trying to summon up some guilt because you feel that will make you a better person? Are you just going along with it because you're used to just doing performative things that are this sort of glossed good intentions and now I'm exonerated from actually maybe doing the hard work? Um, I I'm not sure that there is like hard work we all need to be doing in terms of the Native community. What you need to be doing is, you know, being good to people in general. And um, I, I, I'd like to know who, who thinks that these are, this is the, the thing to do. How did they come to this consensus? And I really would like to know, honestly, if someone here knows, put them in touch with us, what do they feel it's either accomplished or it's on the road to accomplishing? for anybody. I mean, for Native people, sure, but also for themselves. Like, clearly you're doing this for the community. You're not just doing it. You're doing it for the community, right? It's a community thing. What's the, is this the end game? And if that's your end game, like, that's it. Like, now we're done. Then what have you done? So to me, these, my, my assumption would be that these start with a good impulse, which is to better understand the world that we live in and to have a sense of yourself like in in line with many people that have gone before you like and like I just I don't know I think Americans in particular are rootless people that don't really have a sense of ancestry and maybe I'm projecting here you know but I don't know that much about my grandparents and I don't know like th there's just not a real sense of of traditions handed down. And part of that is because we're a polyglot community. Part of that is because my my family in particular were uprooted Yankees. We were living in Dallas. You know, there's just there's all sorts of reasons why you get cut off from the past. But to me, it it starts with a good impulse. But I was doing a little Googling this morning just to kind of figure out like, well, what did these like does like in other like what is the do these work? And so I, I found something on the conversation.com, which was, uh, it was by an anthropologist. And they were saying, you know, no data exists to demonstrate that land acknowledgments lead to measurable concrete change. Instead, they often serve as little more than feel-good public gestures, signaling ideological conformity to what you might call uh, a naive left-wing paint-by-numbers approach to social justice. I, I got to say, I, I my gut agrees with that. I think we've seen, I mean, we're so, we live in an era now where we can express our, our feelings about something like instantly. And, and also we'll talk about that in a little bit. We get addicted to that, that feeling of doing something instantly and being part of that. And, um, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't really see it as doing anything. I, I'll be interested to know two years from now, um, if this has become a codified part of the culture or something we do before every event, or if it's, or if it's in the wash, um, like, like other things. Yeah. I, um, well, uh, well, again, I, I just, I, I still have this, this hunger to better understand 
the experience of being Native. And one of the things I noticed was that there's just not a lot of like what you would say, like spokespeople. Well, see, but I kind of look, okay. I'm okay. So the experience of being Native is the experience of being white. There were yeah, right. Like you, there's, a, there's a billion. It's insane there's a, to say. There's, yeah. there's millions of people, right? And you do. You will have some people. I mean, I, I can say again, my 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 late father-in-law, Will Sampson, he was definitely, I can put a link here. He he was part of a long documentary called Images of Images of Indians, um, talking about like how Indians had been por- portrayed in the media. And that is really how most Americans had their ideas of what Native people were like for several reasons. Number one, Natives were on, a lot of Natives were on a reservations. A lot weren't, but they were not particularly visible. You know, we expect, the average white person expected, if you didn't live around Natives, and some people did, um, to be like wearing a headdress or something. It's like, no, you know, my mom works in a beauty parlor. My mom is the, you know, works in the cafeteria. So that is, you know, that is the Native experience, but you're just not even, you're not really recognizing them. There have been uh, Native American activists, for sure. I also wonder, you know, people are just busy living their lives. And I also, obviously, again, I can't, you know, speak for Native peoples, but, you know, family is like super important and being within your community is super important, like all mixed up and kids and everybody. But I I don't know that, I don't know that it's like, um, how does, how do I say this without sounding? I don't know if it's as like, attractive to like be a spokesperson. Like I will be a spokesperson for my people. I think that would kind of seem a bit distasteful. Um, it seems to me, I mean, I, I could just imagine like talking to my family back there. They'd be like, what? Like, no, no, that's not interesting. Also say something else. I I jotted this down this morning, you know, uh, white Americans, I guess I would say, I guess other kinds of Americans too, and also all over the world, um, have really, you know, between the deifying of and the patronizing of natives, it's just really gross. I mean, you'll see it in this comedy thing that I post, the 1491s. I'm an Indian too. I mean, it's, it's hilarious, but it's also kind of, it's also just like, Ick. So I'll tell a little story. Back in um, the mid-90s, I wrote this. I was part of this episodic TV show that was on Showtime. And um, I was one of the writers. And the head of the show, uh, she was a Jewish girl, I think from New York. She wanted to throw a... Um, a uh, like a big, it was all women. The whole production was women. Can you imagine me being part of something that was all women? But I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, uh, like a, a big crew gift we were all going to get together and do something communal. And she writes us all an email. And the thing that they're going to do is they're going to have a sweat lodge. Okay. You know what a sweat lodge is? All right. So I'm sure most people do, but a sweat lodge is you build a bit of a structure. It's like sticks. You cover it in skins and different things and you get in there and it's extremely hot. You've got a, a fire burning usually in the middle and you, you cover up and it's, it's a holy experience, um, for sweating and it's a native experience. Um, I have been in a sweat lodge and I'll, I can maybe talk about, but it's actually run by a not very good Indian. And I got very, very, very sick as did another girl in the, anyway, other part of the story. In any case, I get this invitation and I, I, I talk to my ex, I see him, he comes over and he's, I was like, I don't want to go to this, this thing. He's like, I don't think you should. And he's like, and you know what, nanny? 
they're playing around with something they do not understand. They don't understand it. They think it's, sure. oh, we're going to honor, or this is going to be so cool. And he's like, that it's, it's kind of bad medicine. And I agreed and I didn't go. I wouldn't go. It's like saying, let's all, let's all pretend to be Catholic and let's get a church and let's do communion. It's like, no, that, that's, that's not how that works. So I don't know what happened inside that sweat lodge, but I, I did not go. And I, I just thought it was, I thought it was kind of gross. Well, that reminds me that one of the first, the first times I heard the phrase cultural appropriation Maybe not the first time I heard that phrase, but I saw it as sort of like a big pushback on social media was around these cool girls that would wear the headdresses to like Mm-mm. Uh, Mm-mm. to like like Bonnaroo and Coachella it's, and stuff like that. They, do they even know what a headdress is? Like they don't even know anything. This is this. I'm sorry. I have complicated feelings about blackface. I think it's idiotic. I don't know why you do it, but I also don't, if someone did it and now they can't ever work again, I'm like, guys, like, let's have a little grace in this world. Why in the world are you putting on a headdress? Because it It looks looks cool. Wait, wait, hold on. Because it looks cool. Well, okay. I mean, because there's some like, and it's, I don't know, different and sexy and, and like all things, it became sort of fashionable. It is not up to me to say what people can and can't wear. And, yeah, it does look kind of cute. You're wearing like, actually, there's uh, some things in this, again, this 1491s I'm going to need to. There's like girls in bikinis wearing headdresses who are clearly white. Um, I'm not saying they can't do that. And frankly, I would think that most of my peeps would be like kind of just like amused. Like, there goes that white girl doing that thing again. But I would say, how do I say this? I'm not going to ban anyone from doing it. They do whatever they freaking want. Right, but you, right. you might want to... I guess I would say, this is interesting. This is a question I wish I could ask my ex, but I will ask my daughter. I'm seeing her later today. It's like, you know, mom, I can hear her saying, mom, it's fashion. People do things with fashion. Like, you know, they take like an ancient Nefertiti Egyptian look and they they cater it and they make it into an interesting dress. If you can do something like this in an interesting way, okay, I guess. I But they also... It's, again, it just seems kind of superficial, but you know what? I got to think a little harder about that. I got to think a little harder about, I don't think of it as cultural appropriation. I don't, I don't like that title. And you know that I think anybody should be, first, first of all, anybody should be able to cook anything they want and should. Well, one of the cool things about studying music, whether it's Elvis or whether it's this Indian um, documentary that we saw, is that you see how much cultures learn from each other. The mixing of cultures is one of the great things about art. So we learn from one another. From from my, you know, five second hot take is that the headdress stuff, like, again, it comes from a good impulse, which is like, hey, maybe you should be thinking more about the the sort of sacred symbols that you use as pieces of fashion. But that doesn't mean you can't wear them. See, that's where I fall off the cracker is. uh, Fall off the cracker. That's so cute. That's what I do. (laughs) I fall off the cracker is, you know, when you say you can't do that. Oh, for sure. I, I am 100% agreement with you. Uh, for sure. I guess I'm, gonna, I'm not going to go back on what I said, I, but I, I'll stick to the thing is like, they don't know what it is. They don't know what a headdress is. I don't even really know what a headdress is either. So I, I can't really, but I guess. That's, you know, I, I have a kimono and I don't really know what it is. Um, huh. I, you know, this is interesting. And then it like, maybe like, okay, maybe everybody wears a headdress and that just, and then, but, but people that know how to use it or that are using it for real, like, 
that have it because of it's an honor. Uh, I'm trying to think if I should tell this other story. No, well, while gonna... you think about that, I'm going to say that one of the cool parts of um, the documentary was that the segment on a band called Redbone, who, oh, do, the best. The who best. do a song called Come and Get Your Love, Come and Get Your Love, which have you seen Guardians of the Galaxy is featured in the, in the opening of that. And uh, it's just a great song. But they had a they had a, a segment from an old, I, I think, like show called like the midnight special or something like that but before these dudes just got up and played their song they had a guy in a headdress doing sort of a native dance it's one and of the guys in the band yeah he's and tra- i thought it was doing super a fa- fancy cool fancy i thought dance. it was super cool and i mean yep. one of the complicated things here is that you're you're normalizing that you're making it cool and then there would be an an impulse perhaps for other kids to do that too, which is, I think, coming from a good impulse, which is like, I thought that it was really neat. Yeah. As opposed I, to, I don't know, like, I don't know the native history of that. So I'll tell a little story. I was up in, uh, I was up in uh, Montana on uh, the Blackfeet Reservation with my, my late ex. He was starring in a movie called War Party. Uh, it was all supposed to be on the Blackfeet Res and he was, uh, playing Warren Cutfoot. He was a native guy. And the two other guys that were playing native, this is hilarious, were Billy Worth, definitely not a native guy. He's from New York uh, at, at like German extraction. And Kevin Dillon, Kevin Dillon, Matt Dillon's brother, made up, they were made up, he was like half Indian, uh, skitty, right? And one of the natives that was in the film was a guy named Saginaw, old, old timey native dude, hadn't done a lot of acting, but was starting to do more acting then. There was a little bar in the, um, the War Bonnet Lodge. That's where we stayed. They actually built this like motel for us to all stay in. And I, at the time, was an idiot. I was like 24 years old and I was like pretending I could read palms, right? And um, I was, uh, Saginaw was there and I was like, well, let me read your palm. Oh man, man, the native guys got around him. Don't let her do that to you. What are you doing now? She can't do that. She doesn't know anything. Saginaw's just like, it's okay. It's okay. It's fine. He's like, cool. He, because it's like, it's fine you don't know what you're doing. It's okay. I love you, daughter. We're just going to be here and do things. So let these girls, let these girls wear their headdresses. And you know, what would be the best is if they didn't just wear it to like the disco or the rave, but if they wore it to a powwow, right. And they could actually get, you know, one of the old timers or whatever to sit with them and say, Hey daughter, I see you're wearing this. Let's talk. Let's. You want to know a little more, or just talk to them and listen to why they're doing it. Let them tell you the impetus for them and their beauty and energy and 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 interest in like mixing things up and fashion. And then like have a conversation with the person that can say, okay, well, let me add to you. Let me add to your store of knowledge and tell you what this is all about. And that is, in a sense. What you're saying about the dude in um, Redbone getting up on the stage and he's doing, and they're they're also singing the, like you'd have the drum and they're singing while he does a fancy dance. And then he picks up his guitar. That song is so badass. And it's also, I think it's actually the title of one of the, um, of one of the uh, Reservation Dogs episodes. Like it's the tape that the cop, always has in his car and he says to the kid in his car well you know this song the kid's like nine nah, redbone what's redbone he's like oh chaban what do you you don't know you gotta listen so yeah we're gonna the best the best song 
Can I ask you one more question before we we leave this topic? And it's a I think it's an, a, a question that is um, naively ignorant on my part, but I, very white person question. I represent all white people. Yes. Um, (laughs) So when I was younger, one of the first things I like the first PC terms I learned not to use was don't use Indian. You're supposed to use Native American because the Indians come like that whole, the phraseology comes from, you know, Columbus's dumb idea that he sailed to India or whatever. And then when I was traveling through Arizona, I visited the Slot Canyons, which are really tremendously beautiful if you've never been. And I was uh, walking around with a woman there and she was like, no, 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 you call us Indians. Yep. And I was like, oh, now I'm confused. And you've already pointed out that the native population is not a monolith. There's going to be many different tribes and many different ideas. But this is always, ever since then, it's seeded this anxiety in me where every time I use Indian, which I do sometimes, and like, for instance, I went to the um, uh, Museum of Indian History in Washington, D.C., and I told some people about it. And and I could almost feel them cringe, like, you're not supposed to use Indian. She's not. And But it's, it's one of the these terms that became like fraught and at the same time elastic. Do you have any insight on that? I do. So I will just tell you, uh, I know hundreds of natives, again, been around native people since 85, and uh, they refer to themselves as native, as Indians. Sorry, wow, that was a slip. Uh, as Indians or Indians or skins. Um, if you look, if you watch the documentary, uh, Rumble, and all the people that are talking, uh, some of whom are, are Indian, they refer to themselves as Indians. They refer to it as Indian music. I mean, I, they, a few might drop native. Uh, my ex referred to himself as, as Indian. Um, this is, in my experience, what how they refer to themselves. Um, my daughter, mm-hmm. she, she'll say I'm American Indian or, or Native American. That's fine too. But there's definitely not in my experience, um, Indians call themselves Indians uh, or Native Americans call themselves Indians or um, or skins. Yeah. Again, just skins. Uh, I'll, I'll give you, I actually know a little bit of Creek only because, you know, it was part, part of the household and uh, so uh, where my, my, my late ex grew up, it was all kinds of people mixed together. It was black, white, native all together. And so here's three words. Um, Stajari is for Indian. Stahutki is white. And uh, Stalesti is native. And um, anyway... So, uh, yeah, that's my experience. And if you, if you, if you watch native shows and stuff, see, I'm saying native too, because I I use both, but again, it's usually Indian that that's my experience. And then, and I, I definitely do not, I have never, I've never in my life encountered anybody except a white person saying, you can't say Indian, you have to say native American. I've never had a native American say that, but also in my experience, my, in my, again, my experience, um, native peoples are, are very polite for the most part. And they, they would not correct you. They would not, it would be, it would be, it would be considered rude. Mm-hmm. So, but well, I'm glad we had this conversation. It's a good post 4th of July conversation because it's a conversation about America and the richness that we have here. The challenges that we face here is, uh, a polyglot society. A lot of people living on the same land, some of which has very fraught history. I will also mention uh, something else that people might not know. Um, uh, there was a very, very big 
tradition of natives serving in the military. And they are very, 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 very proud to, um, to fight for America. There is no doubt. If you don't know about the Navajo code talkers, you go, you, you go look that up. I'll put a link. I, I just got chills. One of the ways, um, we, um, we won World War II was because the Navajo code talkers could talk to each other um, over radios and spread information, and, and the Germans could not crack uh, could not crack their language. Um, uh, very, very, very proud uh, to serve in the military. I have plenty of relatives that did serve in the military. And when you go to the powwow, powwows all over the place, especially in the summer, uh, go go look up in your area, see if there are powwows happening, and go. You're you're more than welcome to go and 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 hmm. go and enjoy and eat some fry bread. Um, but the first people that they honor. Uh, that that come out in the arena are the natives. I mean, are the um, are the military guys? Yeah, they, that they they are honored and they are even despite. And I know you can find plenty of plenty of I'm sure plenty of Indian and native native people who are like unhappy with what happened in this country. I think everybody should be in terms of what happened in terms of the genocide. But we are Americans now, and and I I think uh, proud to be so. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, talking about... It's a perfect segue to TikTok influencers. Well, it is because it's we were talking about the performative nature of the uh, land acknowledgements. And uh, you uh, you kind of, you inundated me yesterday, Sarah Heppola, with some... Um, with some TikTok stuff. I am, I'm old, which means I do not go on TikTok. I understand the beauty of TikTok is being able to just like dive in headfirst and go from thing to 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 thing and just love it. I, I do not engage in that. I've never made a TikTok. Sarah wants me to. Um, but, um, I, I was interested in this. Um, we watched and read some interesting things and, um, thinking about the performative nature of things. So, um, let's talk a little bit about, about TikTok. Well, my favorite story that I read last week um, was a mag a magazine article from Harper's, and it was by a guy named Barrett Swanson who teaches at a Wisconsin college, and he has this uh, like tenure amongst the young folks at one of these TikTok collab houses. And when I first saw this story, like it, it's called the anxiety of influencers. And I just sort of thought like, oh, I've read a lot of stuff about this. I don't know that I want to read another story about this. Um, but, but I, but I love this story because it attempts to kind of both summon the world that these young people are living in and why they're there and place it in the context of a larger story about chasing fame and chasing purpose and chasing meaning. But it also reflects a bit on the extent to which we've all become influencers that we're being pushed in this general direction, whether we like it or not. Um, so, you know, one of the things he he comes to at the end is that, you know, if we sneer and snicker at influencers des desperate quest to win approval from their viewers, it might be because they serve as parodic exaggerations of the ways in which we are all forced to bevel the edges of our personalities and become inoffensive brands. Now, this is, and he, by the way, he uses it, he's a teacher and he talks about the fact that his, his um, survival and his livelihood is based on student evaluations, you know, and you and I are doing a podcast in which we, um, we are dependent on people's support. 
And, you know, I, I, I also think it was interesting to think about the idea of being an influencer and what that means. Um, you know, the author talks about how he, in fact, wanted to be an influencer as well. He just went into teaching college and uh, and he wonders sometimes how much influence he really has. You know, he says at one point, you know, he's, he's teaching something about uh I think life in the digital age. So he's trying to get these kids to think a little bit more meaningfully about the way that they engage online. And he says, I have them for three hours a week and the rest of the time they are marinating in the jacuzzi of personalized algorithms. I love that. He just had a lot of great lines. This guy is a really good writer. Um, you know, and over the years, I've met more and more young people that either explicitly or maybe in an unspoken way want to be influencers. And I've thought about what that means. I mean, I think at first I was sort of like, what's this world coming to? Everybody just wants to be a Kardashian. And then as I've thought about it more, it's kind of like, okay, this is really just the natural urge to be valuable, useful, and acknowledged in a society where what's getting the heat? You know, right. what's getting the sunshine? You want to matter. And, you know, we've moved away from a sense of inherent value that, you know, and this was something that I think like religion really gave people that once you get rid of God, it's, it's, it's difficult to find it again, which is this sense of like, you are worthy, you are loved. And toward a more secular chase for clout and likes. And I mean, I'm, I'm even subject to this, you know, I mean, I, I will confess that I, I struggle sometimes like, you know, uh, what does it mean that I don't have as many Twitter followers or I don't have as many Instagram followers? I really struggle to unlatch that from my own sense of personal value or use or impact in the world. Well, I think, you know, when we were coming up, I'm a little older than you, but basically, you know, similar times, um, to be enterprising, you know, meant you had to look for opportunity and you had to, if you wanted to succeed, you had to apply yourself to succeed. Like this guy who wrote the article, one of the things is like, people are like, oh, who the hell needs college? Why do I need college? I can right. like, I can make all this money now and go to college when I'm 30, if I want to. And, you know, we have seen, not only have we seen, you know, what a college degree gets you devalued, but we've also seen colleges kind of losing their minds in terms of the ideologies. But in any case, people to be enterprising now um, can mean simply to bust an interesting dance move that gets you, you know, 68 million views. And all of a sudden you are on the map. So you don't need to apply yourself. Now, of course, you are not going to get, you know, the, the chances of this happening for you. Hold on a second. Let me turn this off. Sorry about that. Um, the chances of you striking are, are very small, but it's just like anything in Hollywood. I, I wrote you yesterday. Um, you know, people, the, the lifeblood of, of Hollywood is failure, right? You get like 400 people jumping into the tube. They all get smashed up and, you know, two little drops come out and those are the successful ones. But the system needs all that body, all those bodies to survive. I, I admit to also being like you, um, if I, if I, 
you know, let's say I tweet something and I obviously want it to get traction because that's one of the ways I promote my work. The, the When it bums me out when it doesn't, it's not so much if I'm like, oh, doesn't this muffin I made look nice? And I get like two likes, like who cares? But if I've really... But yeah, my muffins, like my muffins. Um, but if uh, but if I've really worked hard on something, you know, a story maybe I've worked for weeks on or even months or I'm tweeting about my book and it doesn't gain any traction, that, that kind of hurts. It's like, well, what can I do? Like, this is what I know how to do. I know how to like apply myself and, and be enterprising and try to put the best work into the world for you. And I get seven people liking it. Meanwhile, you know, you bust a dance move on TikTok and you get 68 million likes. That that makes me question, like, how do I, you know, what am I doing here? But I, I you know, I'm still gonna probably, maybe, or maybe I'll just add TikTok to the mix. Who knows, Sarah Hepla? But um, yeah, it's a it's a different world now. We also, it, it's very, very, very attractive, uh, maybe incandescently attractive. The idea that I can be acknowledged and loved just for being me in a nicely curated. 15 second video. I was uh, fascinated by the examples um, uh, that are that are used in this. Again, I, I don't know if I explained it terribly well, but these collab houses are basically, um, I don't know if I can explain it very well, but they're basically houses where a lot of these influencers come and live together and they make, they have their own, they're developing their own brands, but they're also collaborating on on stuff that they're doing together. And I was really reminded of the real world, weren't you? Uh, and who wrote the real real world book? That would be me. Yeah, I, it it reminded me very 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 much of the real world, um, but on hyperspeed. Okay, yes. because the real world they're filming you for three months in a house, and then they're editing like people. They're filming you, you're performing or not, you're crying or not, you're pooping in the bathroom or not or whatever, and then they're editing this, they're, the, the, the people are creating it. The, 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 the TikTok houses are very interesting in terms of the sort of mercenary nature of both the people creating the houses and the people in the houses. So the kids that are in there are not paying for the $35,000 a month house that they're living in. This is being paid for by whoever has put together this TikTok house, they are, it is attended upon them to every day and at all times, never not be trying to make something interesting that can go viral. But then what was really interesting, okay, so they'll say to someone, oh, I got 68 million views on this. And did you make money off of that? No, that's not how I make money. I make money, products pay for me to like, um, you know, if it's a skin cream or it's a hot dog or it's an app, they're paying the influencers. But I don't think, is it the case, Sarah, that they're also making, I mean, who's making this money? Who's making this money if the guy has 68 million views of their, on their, their, uh, their, their little uh, video of the day, their TikTok of the day? Well, I, I don't, I think there's a bit of a wild west thing going on with the, um, with, with how money is being made and some people seem to cash in a lot. I mean, one of the people that this, uh, Harper's article focuses on is a kid named Christopher Romero. He's 19. He's from a little town in Colorado and he started, uh, live streaming himself from his bedroom. 
I was fascinated to see what this guy looked like because why are 2,000 people watching him sleep? And so I went to his TikTok channel and then I spent the next damn 20 minutes watching this kid do nothing, basically, just like talking to the camera. He is. He's very good looking. He's uh, He's got an openness to him and ease. He's got this really good looking girlfriend. She's very charismatic as well. Um, you know, where this couple is making money ultimately is through endorsements with places like Raising Cane's. So old fashioned traditional um, corporations, and this seems to be the golden goose, uh, pay them. I think he made something like $35,000 for a Raising Cane's ad. Uh, I'm sorry. Uh, it was $60,000. Um, so, so there is a lot of money to be made. It's hugely arbitrary. I'm sure these corporations are just throwing money here, trying to get on this train. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't. Um, Maybe you stay on the, you know, stay on the rocket ride. Maybe, you know, 90% of you get, you know, fall off to the side. Uh, I think one of the interesting things about this is there, you know, th- well, there's two, there's several things that are interesting. One of them was that, you know, like, so we also watched a, a, a Vice report that Michael Moynihan did uh, on a collab house as well in, in Hollywood. And it was, it was great. I mean, he, he asks such good questions. He's such a, he's such a good ambassador of this world um, that sort of And he's so funny and so confused too. He's so funny and confused. Like when you first see him, he's on the porch and he just looks like this grumpy New Yorker while all these kids are out there like doing their dances and he's got his arms like crossed and he, you know, he's kind of like shoulders shrugged and he's sort of like, okay, okay. Now what is happening? What? 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 (laughs) Has that, um, that New York intellectual look. Um, but he's, but he's great with them and he's not condescending and he's, uh, he asks a lot of really good questions. And, um, but one of the women that he interviews, you know, he's asking her why she does this. And she's like, well, basically I don't like work, but then the weird thing is, is that as you've already expressed, if you're doing this, you're kind of working all the time. You're basically turning your personality or yourself into your work, which is uh, yeah. very, uh, which is very exhausting and dangerous. Well, they find, and that, that's what they also find so attractive, right? I can just be me. I mean, you and I have talked right. about wanting to be famous in when we were kids, and I just wanted to be famous being me, right? Like just me. I'm, I'm, I'm cute. I'm this and that. I give a blah 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 blah. And that, but, but there's no. You can never turn off. And the interesting thing, you, you sent me the Romero. Uh, kids TikTok, a few of them. He's unbelievably charming and goofy and silly and very easy in his skin, as is his girlfriend. They're like really like they it's just they're absolutely delightful. You spend like five minutes with them, it gives you hope for the world. It's just adorable. Having said that, a lot of these kids, when we were watching the documentary, uh the Michael Peace and Vice, you can just see how sort of self-conscious they are. And also what it's like, can you imagine? I mean, having to come up with a new idea every 14 minutes, every minute, every constantly, every minute, you know, as a writer, you can't do that. You can't just like, you just can't spool out new ideas every second, but that's what they need to do. And it, it looks to me fairly, uh, fairly grueling. Um, they claim to love it. Some of them will make it. Most of them will not, but that's exactly the way it's always been in the Hollywood machine or in always. the fame 
So, okay, it's just a new, it's a new delivery system that people are, you know, people are responding to. Five years from now, it's going to be something else or two years from now. So, yeah. Yeah, it, I rem- as I was reading this story, I was like, a sentence came to mind that was like, in the future, everyone will be on the real world. And, you know, we've, we've combined the real world sense of you're going to watch other people's lives with the DIY aesthetic of mm-hmm. porn, which is that you can do it in your own house. Like all you need is a phone. You know, we've cut out the middleman, which is the camera crew. You know, that used to be the hard thing is <laughs> you needed the camera crew. Yeah. But we've kind of cut out the camera crew. So you've cut out the the middleman. And now it's just, you know, there's there's a there's a person interviewed for the uh, for the Harper's piece. And they say, like, you can be in Cleveland, Ohio alone in your bedroom and you can get a million followers overnight. That's crazy. It's never been possible. Wealth, fame, status has never been more attainable for anyone in the history of the world the way it is right now. That may be true, (laughs) but it is almost certainly true that that will not be what happens for most of these kids, that this is happening at a time when, you know, we see, uh, I was doing a little Googling about whether college is still like an important thing for kids, (laughs) you know, like what are the outcomes associated with college? Because we're seeing people move away from college. And I think I think people are just losing faith in a sense that hard work will get you a life that is sustainable. So they're looking for these, you know, these quick fixes or these get rich quick. This has always been true, I'm sure. It's just never been so maybe readily available. Well, it's sort of like it reminds me, like, why does my mother still buy scratch offs? She buys them like when she goes to the gas station and she buys them because, you know, you might hit. And TikTok, it's like, or maybe any of this, it's like scratch-offs. You know, you just have to, all you need to do is go in and like scratch it off and maybe make it. But I'll tell you what, the people that make it, I mean, I don't, you know, the people that make it as soccer players, they really work hard to be a good soccer player. And and there's probably, you know, some aspect of this to TikTok fame. Like if you work really hard on it and you've got some certain, you know, sort of God-given charms, then maybe you're going to make it. Um, But you're not just going to make it just because it looks so easy because I'm sure it's not easy. Just like, you know, at all. Have you ever been around a bunch of social media influencers? No, not that I know of. I once went to this restaurant that had just opened in Dallas. And I I think it was like in a cool part of town. And I think they must have extended an invite to social media influencers that night. Because my friend and I were sitting at the bar and we were surrounded by all these people that were like, there was basically like a hot girl eating and then her boyfriend recording her like all around mm. us. And then there were like groups of girls that kept clinking their glass while they were recording it. Like it was it was the most surreal thing. Uh, it, it was well, just like watching a lot of people rehearse what their life might be Um so when do you live actual life, like in between takes or but, does but, that become actual life? One of the things I think about is that this, these worlds, you know, whether it's TikTok or some of these platforms like Twitch and Discord and all these platforms that are becoming really popular, they seem like transitional modes before we start living in the cloud where that 
is life? Oh, well, you know, yeah, I would, I would say that that's right, but I think we're also going to always have this life. But if this, but if this earth becomes uninhabitable and then we all start living in the cloud, maybe we're just like, I don't know, maybe then it does become the matrix. I don't know. I have no idea where all of this is going, but I will say that it feels like there is a push toward real life being virtual life. I think that's probably true. And speaking of real life versus virtual life, um, your podcast partner here is on a clock Uh this morning. So first of all, what is the name of the show, Sarah Hepler? It is called Smoke 'em If You Got 'em, where we talk about what's burning through the culture right now. That's right. Um, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, first of all, I had never actually—I don't know if you have. I, um, my, our friend Yael, who does the podcast, um, Ask a Jew. She tapes out of here, Paloma Media. She's like, so how many, how many um, ratings do you have on Apple Podcasts? I'm like, what? I had never even oh, gone yeah, over you- there to look. So if you want to, I guess you're supposed to say if you want to go over there and rate us feel free. There are some there already. It's um, very useful. It helps with, um, with searches, you know, the more ratings you get, the better the algorithm. Yeah. The yes. algorithm push us further into the cloud faster. So, um, we need yeah, that'd good be, algorithm. That'd be great. Um, I asked you guys last time if you could tell two friends about our show and I think some of you did. So thank you very much. Keep signing up. Uh, and also, um, I'm going to just announce that we are going to be doing something. We haven't. We don't have it exactly planned out, but we are going to start doing some um, some interviews here. And I've got my first one. I'm going to be talking to a um, a woman named Catherine Miles. She wrote a book called Trailed: One Woman's Quest to Solve the Shenandoah Murders. I was so enwrapped in this book that I missed my bus. I was standing there at a bus stop and all of a sudden I look up and obviously the bus had stopped because it was pulling away, but I didn't see it. So I'm going to try to get on the horn with her um, pretty soon and we will post that. And maybe, you know, a couple times a, a month, we'll have some uh, interviews here for you. Maybe we're doing them separately. I, I know Sarah has some ideas. I do um, have you- a few ideas of, of people that I'd like to interview. I'm reading a, a, some some books about contemporary sex that I find pretty interesting. Um, so sorry to cut it a little bit short here, guys, this week. Um, thanks for tuning in, Sarah. I hope you have a lovely, um, upcoming weekend and, um, we'll see you guys soon. Nancy. Yes. Come and get your love. I'm gonna. Bye. Bye. Bye.